0: Happy March 27th, the last Monday in March. This month is flying by so quickly, it's hard to keep track of things. And today's episode is going to be keeping you guys abreast with two updates you may have missed, but very important updates relating to conservation that I've talked about before, but need to drill down a little bit more, offer some context because there may be some confusion. People haven't really been questioning uh, the first topic, we're going to talk about national monuments. So That's my favorite thing to talk about. It's so complex, but it deserves the scrutiny these different executive actions that are coming down. And kind of nuance is needed more there. Then we're going to talk about WOTUS and a federal court judge handing down an injunction for WOTUS to not proceed in two states, in Texas and Idaho, yet going into effect in 16 other states, actually going nationwide, of course, but not being applied to 16 other states that challenged it. However, before we discuss these in detail here on the podcast today, I want to put on your radar my appearance on Fox & Friends first. It's my official Fox News channel debut. I haven't been on the channel before. I've had my reporting cited there earlier this year, and I've periodically had my tweets and some musings mentioned on Fox occasionally across the years, but it's my first actual TV hit. And it's related to conservation in a sense, and energy and the push for renewables. And if it's truly sustainable as it applies to kind of a global perspective, most concentratedly in Africa. I talked about the vice president's visit there. So there should be a clip in the show notes for you guys to check out. Let me know how you think I did. (laughs) Hopefully you'll be nice. And and I didn't do too terribly. It's early morning and you get a little nervous when you do your first major TV hit like this. So a little bit of the jitters, but I hope you like what I have to say. Now let's move on to these two topics that are very pressing, but needing to have some analysis to them. Thank you for listening. Last week, President Biden, during a conservation summit in conjunction with the Department of Interior, announced the creation of two new national monuments, which probably total a little under, cumulatively, a million acres. The first one in Nevada is over 500,000 acres, and the El Paso one is about 7,000 acres, and the National Marine Sanctuary is over 770,000. Exploration of a National Marine Sanctuary as well, those also fit into the National Monument debate. I'm going to first break down what the two proposed monuments are, what monuments are supposed to be. We'll talk about the antiquities component, reforms that are needed, my kind of problem with using the Antiquities Act in this manner, using it just to, on a whim, declare something a national monument. Was there consultation? Are these truly antiquities? What is this? What went into the president's thinking? And then I'm going to talk about, can you shrink and can you enlarge monuments. Yes, you can. There hasn't been any clarification on this, so we'll talk about whether or not there is room for Congress to reform this law and whether or not presidential power should be limited. And why they want to use national monument designations for 30 by 30, which we've talked about at length here. Sounds really great on paper, but 30 by 30 is very preservationist. It's not very conservationist-minded. And the problem with national monuments, as I'll discuss on the program today, a little refresher course, is that they often close off opportunities to people when you close off multiple uses you also are closing off people not only to making a livelihood on public lands you're also closing off opportunities to recreate on public lands to hunt and fish that is what i've seen and observed in several states that i've visited and interviewed people from. I did two reports on this in Arizona and Utah. I spoke to stakeholders there who have expressed concerns for many, many years that national monument designations get weaponized and they keep people off public lands, which is not the intention of public lands. National monuments even, although more restrictive than BLM or Forest Service or Fish and Wildlife Service lands, they need to be open to the public. And this push for moving away from multiple use to public use, which eliminates... Key funding mechanisms, multiple use, public-private partnerships, and really invites preservationists to lead conversations and to dictate parameters. Very worrisome. So what are the two national monuments, now that I've kind of prefaced what I'm going to be discussing? So there's one in Nevada called Avi Kwame, and that is going to be in Nevada. And then there's also a second one proposed for El Paso, Texas, and it is the Kastner Range National Monument in northern El Paso. I'm looking at Politico, President Biden signed a presidential memorandum directing Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo to evaluate using her authority under the National Marine Sanctuaries Act to designate a marine sanctuary covering an enormous 770,000 square miles, including the existing Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument southwest of Hawaii in the 30 days. And both the sanctuary... Designation and the two monuments, not surprisingly, are in concert with 30 by 30. 30 by 30 stipulates on the surface, sounds great, like I said, that they want to conserve 30% of waters and 30% of lands by 2030. Sounds like a noble goal. Are we truly missing these threshold goals? Not so much. If you look at the US PAD map under the US Geological Service and you examine, Federal lands, we have over 640 million acres of federal lands, and I don't want to see those shrink. I do think they should be better managed. I'm a conservative and I support public lands, but you have to allow public uses, multiple uses, rather, on public lands, allow the public to access it in many different ways. That model has worked tremendously, but 30 by 30 completely upends that model because it doesn't define what conservation is. It says these nice platitudes that, yes, we're going to allow conservation, we're going to allow private stakeholders and hunters and anglers, but most of it is tied to climate rhetoric, climate proposals, and to basically lock up lands to opportunities for the public to recreate. And that is why I have had a lot of questions and a lot of criticisms about 30 by 30. I'm not alone, and I'm not just saying this as a conservative to reflexively oppose Biden's agenda But this is a really bad policy because it gives government oversight even more over decisions that should be left to private-public partnerships, individuals, conservation stakeholders giving. It doesn't make sense to me that the government is incentivizing voluntary action on conservation. That's not voluntary. That's nearly coercive, if we're being honest here. And so these two national monuments are going to be created soon, barring any legal challenge. And I want to talk briefly about what the Antiquities Act does and why it is such an interesting law that doesn't really get much of attention. It it warrants your attention, of course. I really like this subject. I have visited National Monuments. I went to Bear's Ears last year and I did a report there and I covered it. And I, I like Bear's Ears in the smaller iteration that it was downsized to under the presidential administration by the former Trump administration, last administration. But President Biden resized it to pre-Trump levels to over a million acres. It was about a million acres under President Obama, resized it to probably the biggest iteration of it, 1.4 million acres. And I learned there that through one of the commissioners we interviewed and spoke to, all in the show notes, if you are curious to see my report, what was largely being conserved beyond the Native American artifacts and the antiquities that are there, they were conserving in those 1.4 million acres in those 1.4 million acres because that designation fully went into effect recently. It is being challenged in the courts by Utah lawmakers to kind of downsize it back to about 200, 300,000 acres. Antiquities, to my understanding, are supposed to be very sacred. They're supposed to not be very prevalent. You can't really include flora and fauna that is not endangered in that categorization, especially flora, uh, plants and trees and things like that. And what I learned there in Utah when I visited Bears Ears was that this National Monument designation protects things that are not antiquities. And so when everything becomes an antiquity, nothing is an antiquity. And that really dilutes the intention of the law. I want to read for you what the Antiquities Act of 1906 actually stipulates, and here is what it does. Reading from Cornell Law School, there are several different components, and one of them, Section 2, as I like to reference here, states this as it relates to the reservation of land. The President may reserve parcels of land as part of the National Monuments. The limits of the parcels shall be confined to the smallest area compatible with the proper care and management of the objects protected. The El Paso one may fit into this interpretation of Section 2 of the Antiquities Act because it's 7,000 acres, smallest area compatible. This Nevada one is more controversial in my opinion because the Nevada governor was not consulted were all tribal interests fully consulted? That's a question I have. Is it going to close off public lands to multiple uses, including hunting and fishing? As we have seen in states like Arizona and Utah, where this happens, when you designate national monuments, you lose paradoxically the access that you are supposed to have to public lands to do grazing, ranching, guiding, what have you. So I read for you what that is. The Bears Ears designation the 1.4 million acres is not the smallest area compatible. Not everything under that designation is an antiquity. I have questions about these two new ones too, especially the Nevada one. How much of that is actually antiquities? Those are worth protecting. Native artifacts, uh, different rare structures, perhaps endangered species that fall into it. But if Like I said, if everything is in antiquity, nothing's in antiquity. And this is the question. Section two has long been debated whether or not presidential authority can be limited in this instance. And I want to cite for you guys a article that I found very interesting from 2017, the Brookings Institution, which is by no means conservative, but they had a phenomenal article explaining that President Trump, if you recall, was accused of selling public lands. Patagonia plastered this message. All over the place they bought an ad in the Washington Post, if I recall correctly. And they had social media campaigns. They raised a lot of money. They virtue signaled. And it caused a lot of uproar. And from there, a lot of people thought the president can't shrink national monuments. I read for you the smallest area compatible. That is what is key in the law. But Obama, Biden, and even Clinton with Grand Staircase-Escalante and a few other places... They didn't really adhere to that stipulation of smallest area compatible. And President Trump, believe it or not, was not the first president to use the Antiquities Act to shrink a national monument. And in addition to what else also Antiquities, it says this. uh, Declare historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, other objects of historic or scientific interest that are situated on lands owned or controlled by the government of the United States to be national monuments. You cannot designate private land land. To become a national monument, it is not already federal lands. As I had mentioned, may reserve as a part thereof parcels of land, the limits of which in all cases shall be confined to the smallest area compatible with proper care and management of the objects to be protected. If you need a refresher on the Antiquities Act, you can do that. But back to the controversy surrounding diminishment. So a lot of people, when they think of the Antiquities Act, they say, okay, a president can enlarge it, but how dare they diminish it? You can both diminish and also enlarge it. But it goes back and forth, it volleys back and forth over whether or not the president can have limited powers. So in the 1976 law, the Federal Land and Policy Management Act, many people interpret that to mean the president has limits in terms of engaging with diminishment directly, noting that the, and I'm reading from Brookings Institution, that the Department of Interior Secretary can modify existing Protected areas. They have, according to this, two challenges emerged from this argument. Why that's not true. First is that the law is explicit in limiting the interior secretary's power and not the president's power, even though Congress and Congress has constitutional authority to limit the president's powers explicitly. Second, Congress is engaging in limitations broadly listed numerous areas of law in which the executive branch would be restricted from diminishment or abolition and failed to include the antiquities act on this list. It is true that the first part of the law grants the president, the power to establish national monuments. The second part of the grant could easily be interpreted to imply the power to diminish the section notes the limits of which in all cases shall be confined to the smallest area compatible with proper care and management of all the objects to be protected. Here, a president is charged to make this area as small as is needed Courts have ruled several times on cases involving the Antiquities Act without once challenging the president's discretion on the grounds of the size of the monument, even as cases dealt with some of the largest national monuments. Like I said, was President Trump the first diminisher in chief? No. Previous presidents, Eisenhower, Truman, Taft, reportedly on multiple occasions, Wilson and Coolidge, reduced monuments significantly significantly. None of those diminishments were ever reversed in courts. So it's interesting they fixated on Trump's diminishment of Bears Ears, but not these others. Now you know for context that diminishment is not an anomaly. It's actually been done before by presidents of the past. And Congress has to jump in here and put limitations on what presidential powers are. Does it mean the smallest area compatible? How many acres does that look like? Does it include everything being deemed an antiquity or are certain objects going to be clarified as antiquities or not? And so we could see the Supreme court weigh on, on a decision like this. I remember there was a court case relating to a Marine sanctuary last year. We're going to pull that up again. I'm going to do a full explainer at town hall this week on this very subject, a primer on this, talking about this in more detail. So you can have it there as a resource at your disposal from townhall.com this upcoming Friday, but many questions to be had. I see the Nevada one going to be challenged for sure because of the scale of it. Like I said, I believe it's at least 200,000 acres. Is everything there in antiquity? Are the public going to lose access to hunting, fishing, grazing, other opportunities afforded by multiple use? And the 30 by 30 law, which has slipped under the radar, is a very pervasive policy. The UN has codified it into their kind of framework at the most recent Biodiversity Summit. And it's much like the Paris Accords, if you're familiar. They stipulate that wealthy nations like the United States are going to have to help poorer countries pull the legwork, follow through with their commitments. We're going to have to contribute $30 billion annually by 2030 to help other countries meet their biodiversity goals. And I don't like that. That doesn't sit well with me, especially countries that are terrible in the environment, don't have any conservation standards in place, and just don't have any respect for the environment. So why are we bailing them out? Why can't they meet their biodiversity thresholds on the outset? And again, my concern also stands with why is the government encouraging voluntary action? It's coercive when you do that. It's not voluntary. Not voluntary whatsoever. So conservationists, you need to read up on these. You need to go beyond the headlines. Don't take everything at face value. Study the different resources available. These are not even conservative resources available to you stating that national monuments can be controversial and they can limit opportunities for sportsmen and women. Go to my Desiree article on that also in the show notes, but that's kind of a quick wraparound. Back to this news item, everything you need to know about monuments, going to cover on town hall this Friday. So you have more of an explainer, a topic that won't take as much time, but there's a lot of context for monuments. We're going to talk about WOTUS, the waters of the United States rule, and a very interesting development happened 18 states have been suing the Biden administration to counter the implementation of the revised or rather renewed Waters of the United States rule that really has a broad definition of what a navigable water is. That could mean a puddle, a pond, even a little like trickle could be subject to regulation under the Clean Water Act by way of the Environmental Protection as a navigable water. That is complicated private property rights. It is really kind of messed up conservation relationships out West. This law is very controversial with a broad application and two States, Texas and Idaho were able to stop the law or rather the revised rule from going into effect over whether or not something is more broadly defined as a navigable water. So the 16 other States that were suing did not have this same luxury afforded to them. So for throughout the country, 48 states will have the new ROTUS rules implemented. These two aforementioned states will not. So let's talk about what this update means. I'm reading from Bloomberg. This is from March 20th. And the headline reads, Judge Halt's Biden administration Waters rule in Texas and Idaho. A federal court in Texas issued a preliminary injunction against the Biden administration's Waters rules. I believe it was just a few days, I think the 19th. The injunction applies to only Texas and Idaho. The 2020... 3. WOTUS Rule takes effect Monday in the rest of the country and determines which waters and wetlands receive federal protection under the Clean Water Act. U.S. District Court Judge Jeffrey Vincent Brown wrote that Texas and Idaho in Texas versus EPA are likely to successfully challenge the rules and position of Clean Water Act jurisdiction over all interstate waters regardless of navigability. Since the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers finalized the new rule, which codifies a pre-2015 definition of WOTUS with some tweaks, at least 26 states as well as agriculture and industry groups have joined at least five lawsuits seeking to vacate the rule. These agencies' interpretation of the Clean Water Act to include interstate waters without any limiting principle raises Serious federalism questions, the judge wrote. The rule is likely to irreparably harm Texas and Idaho for intruding on their sovereignty and imposing unrecoverable compliance costs, the judge added. Brown said he limited the rule to just the two plaintiff states in the case because states that haven't challenged the rule have the right to embrace it if they choose, and other courts should have the opportunity to consider the rule in separate litigation. Over at IWF, I talked about this revised rule, this return to pre-2015 WOTUS rules going into effect, what that means. And at IWF, I focus on this very prominently, very often. And I explain what a navigable water is and and what the implications are from this rule. And I hope you guys find it interesting, a quick explainer, because if you're not a lawyer, it's very, very confusing. And I call this new or rather revision or reversion back to the 2015 WOTUS rules. It muddies the definition of a navigable water. And... They claim with this new rule that it, the agency and rather the Clean Water Act will adhere to a, quote, durable definition of votes to reduce uncertainty from changing regulatory definitions, protect people's health and support economic opportunity. And Michael Regan, the EPA administrator, said when Congress passed the Clean Water Act 50 years ago, it recognized that protecting our waters is essential to ensuring healthy communities and a thriving economy. Following extensive stakeholder engagement, not so much, and building on what we've learned from previous rules, EPA is working to deliver a durable definition of voters that safeguards our nation's water, strengthens economic opportunity, and protects people's health while providing greater certainty for farmers, ranchers, and landowners. Those three stakeholders are the ones who are largely opposed to any revision to what a navigable water is or a broad definition of a navigable water. But in turn, believe it or not, through the House, Joint House Resolution was passed to revoke. It It won't get the same support in the Senate, unfortunately, so that's where these court challenges have to come into effect. And this broadened definition of jurisdictional waters or navigable waters is complicated because it can invite abuse from regulators at EPA to lead to more intrusion on private property rights that were previously seen for example, under the Obama administration. A case that I have highlighted before when talking about WOTUS is against the late Joe Robertson. He was out of Montana. He's a Navy veteran who was sent to jail. He passed away during court proceedings, and he posthumously won against the EPA for discharging pollutants without a permit. The gentleman had spent 18 months in jail, was ordered to pay $130,000 in fines. He was posthumously exonerated after the case was vacated by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a very liberal court. He was sent to jail for digging ponds on his property that were wrongly deemed to be situated near navigable water. Do you see how broad this definition is? And the EPA states clearly on their website that the Clean Water Act establishes the scope of federal jurisdiction under the act, but the law doesn't define what is or isn't a navigable water. That authority ultimately lies within the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers. And we're going to see perhaps clarification of this law. Maybe we'll see it struck down by more courts. Maybe the High Court, the Supreme Court, is going to take this on. I believe they are with Sackett versus EPA, a decision that is expected to be handed down later this year. We'll probably see a clarification of what a navigable water is. That definition may be more narrowed down, more fine-tuned to state that it's not just broadly something like a puddle, a trickle, or a pond. And like I said, it brings up a lot of private property questions. Can the government have this oversight? Should they have this oversight? And I want to make sure that everyone is aware you're not going to lose wetlands with this. This has nothing to do with encroaching on wetlands, existing wetlands. I think there has to be a balance with navigable waters. I don't want to see wetlands destroyed But I don't want to see people's private properties indemnified and condemned because someone has a supposed navigable water. This can be decided on a whim. Someone doesn't like you can report you to the EPA and say, "Hey, you have a navigable water on your property." This can be done out of retribution. The government is weaponized in many regards, and I worry this reversion back to the 2015 WOTUS rules will invite that. We don't need that. But rest assured, no wetlands are going to be destroyed in the process. You can have a balance. You can't have these water rules supersede private property rights. There has to be some sort of middle ground here, and that's what this rule doesn't accomplish. So we will see more challenges. We'll see the Supreme Court tackle this in Sackett versus EPA and whether or not uh, their Clean Water Act scope over wetlands is going to be clarified. I would say it even broadens more than wetlands. It's it's water on private property, whether or not the EPA has a limited authority to de- designate everything in navigable water. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.